Hi, Neclistus. Helen here with a quick note before I play today's podcast. This interview was recorded a couple weeks ago, just a few days before groups of legislators in both chambers of Congress announced their intention to push for a revival of the DREAM Act. There are a few different versions of this bill floating around in the House and Senate right now, but essentially legislators are seeking to replace the DACA program, which President Obama created by executive order following the failure of the original DREAM Act in Congress. So DACA could be repealed under the Trump administration, and actually several states are threatening to challenge the order in court if Trump doesn't repeal the program by September. So rather than re-record the entire interview, I'm just going to go ahead and play the original recording. These new developments are definitely something to keep an eye on, but as you'll hear as you're listening to the podcast, the content of this episode is pretty much unaffected and the commentary remains relevant. So enjoy the pod. Welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. The summer issue of the NACLA Report is called Wall Off Trump, and in it, our contributors examine how the Trump administration's policies have changed, continued, and in many ways intensified existing U.S. policies toward Latin America and its people. Today, I'm speaking with NACLA contributor Alicia Galvez, Associate Professor of Latin American, Latinx, and Puerto Rican Studies at Lehman College in New York City. Alicia is also the founding faculty advisor for the Lehman College Dream Team, a group of student activists who advocate for immigrant rights on college campuses and beyond. Alicia, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having us today. Yeah, thanks for being here. So we're joined by a group um, of three of the Lehman College Dream Team's founders, uh, Luis Saavedra. Luis, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. And also uh, Melissa Garcia Velez. Hi, how are you? Good, good, good to have you. And Marlon Fernandez. Hi, nice to be here. Great. So um, you all participated in this roundtable with Alicia for the Knuckle Report, um, where you talked about the origins of this group, but also a lot about um, how things have evolved since the DREAM Act failed in Congress and DACA was passed by the Obama administration. Um, so maybe we can talk for just a second um we can go around and, and talk about how uh, each of you got involved in um, this particular group, the Dream Team, but um, then maybe we can talk about what each of us or each of you is up to now. Um, so maybe, Alicia, you can start and we can just go around. Yeah, I think I would like to defer to Melissa because Melissa was one of the um, people who came up with the idea of the Dream Team initially. Awesome. Sounds great. Melissa, it's all you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having us um, and be able to, to talk with you all today. Um, so my name is Melissa. I'm originally from Colombia. I came to the U.S. when I was eight years old in 2001 um, and to reunite with my mother who had migrated here um, in the early 90s. Um, I found out that I was undocumented uh, during my uh, high school years before applying to college. Um, and that was a really difficult time. Um, and so it was really fortunate to find, um, after, after graduating high school, I found an organization called the New York State Youth Leadership Council, uh, which is the first undocumented youth-led organization in New York uh, that was advocating, organizing, and empowering um, undocumented youth here in New York State. Um, and so they were my first introduction to organizing, to understanding the power of community, um, and they were the ones that trained Christopher Chavez and myself 
um, to be able to start the Lehman Dream Team. And so the Lehman Dream Team uh, was basically a, a club, a student organized uh, club that was created to provide support um, to undocumented students um, on campus at uh, Lehman College and also to uh, create an, a community of organizing and activism on campus um, to ensure that immigrant students as well as staff, faculty and allies were able to join us in the efforts um, during that time. It was uh, 2010 uh, to help us in passing the DREAM Act, uh, which was a federal bill that was going to open a pathway towards citizenship for uh, undocumented young people. And so Christopher and I met through the YLC during the summer before our starting college. Um, and once we found out that we were both going to Lehman, we, he, he came up to me and shared that he, would, he wanted to start some sort of organization or community on campus to be able to do the work that we were doing already off campus through the YLC um, and to be able to organize uh, the Lehman community and taking action and uh, letting them know that they had our support. Um, and so it really started off just as an idea for a student club and thankfully um, our community and the community at Lehman really uh, welcomed us with open arms. We were not sure what to expect, especially during this time where all Immigration was also a very hot topic, uh, but we were very fortunate to have the support of Alicia and so many other um, staff members and faculty who really embraced us and welcomed us on campus. And so from 2010 and on still today, it's been seven years, um, the club it continues to exist um, and continues to empower and, and organize the Lehman community. Fantastic. Um, that's really great. So you graduated in 2014. Yes, I graduated on, yeah. Cool. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since graduating, and uh, Marlon and Luis, you can also talk about that. Yeah, sure. So right after graduation, um, I got accepted to a fellowship. Uh, it was the first time this uh, the Immigrant Justice Corps Fellowship was taking place, um, and it was a, became a program um, to provide free uh, quality immigration services to the uh, New York community. Um, and so I was part of the first cohort um, and we were EIA accredited representatives. Um, so what, what it meant is that we were able to represent people in their immigration applications, such as in like citizenship, DACA, green card, um, and we were able to represent them through the entire application. Um, so I did that fellowship for about two years, um, and I'm currently working at Atlas DIY, which is a, a immigrant youth organization in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, um, and we provide different programs and services to the immigrant community, young people between the ages of 14 and 24, uh, and we help with from legal services to college access to leadership development. Um, so I've been working with the community as well here. Um, in addition, I've been also working as a teaching artist. So uh, another element that we saw through the immigrant rights movement was how art um, could also help us in advocating and creating a safer platform for our communities. And so um, I've been using dance as a way to to communicate, to, to organize, and to create an, another form of activism in our community. Marlon, how did you get involved with the Dream Team? Um, and what have you been up to since you graduated from Lehman? Um, so I ended up at Lehman by chance. Um, I'm originally from Westchester, which is not in the city, so I come according to my friends from upstate. Um, so when I like when I got onto campus, um, I was really frustrated with um, the whole immigration and having to end up at Lehman because of my immigration status. Um, so I finally decided that it was time to do something about it, 
And I remember walking to one of my math classes, and on the way to math class, I saw this flyer that was advertising um, their first meeting um, coming up. So what I did is I took the flyer down, I remember, and I saved it. I was like, I'm going to show up for this meeting. And I was like, I'm going to do something finally because, um, you know, it's time to change. And um, I showed up at the meeting. Um, I remember Chris was there and Luis were there. I think I was the first one to show up and I was super scared. Like I had never been in this space. We were specifically talking about being undocumented and what you could or couldn't do. And then, you know, slowly but surely the room began to fill and I began to understand that I wasn't alone. And I met a thriving community. You know, I met Melissa, among other students that same day, um, who were really passionate about changing things. And it was 2010, so our, our platform was um, the National Dream Act at the federal level. So it was a lot of movement. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Um, There's a lot of hope. I would like to say that um, things were going to change. Um, so it really changed my life from moving from that meeting moving forward after having met all of them and having the space on campus to organize was really amazing. And um, just being able to know that there was a whole not only student group but also faculty and staff and the administrators at Lehman that were very supportive of our cause was. Um, very motivating um, to kind of reassure us that not, we were not only safe, but that we could openly talk about the many issues and the complexities of what it meant to be an undocumented student. Um, so through that um, activism on campus, um, you know, I learned about the New York City Youth Leadership Council and became more involved, and I co-founded the Westchester Dream Team, where I come from, um, to try to bring the work that we were, were participating in here at the local level um, back home. Um, but that also led me to be more involved on campus and then really identify what I wanted to study. And um, Alicia Galvez was our professor, our advising professor. Many of um, Lehman Dream Team members in class with her and they had just raved about how great she was. And um, at that moment, also, it was uh, 2012, moving a little bit forward, um, the Institute for uh, Mexican Studies was just being formed at Lehman. And um, I just happened to be, I guess, the right place at the right time. Um, I was taking class with Alicia, and she asked me if I wanted to volunteer for the conference that would launch off the Institute. And um, it was so exciting. There was a scholarship that was going to be announced. Um, the Institute was forming the first one of its kind, kind on the East Coast. Um, so all of this was happening, and it, and it was post-2010, after the Dream Act fell. There was a lot of movement for the state level for the New York State Dream Act, so it was very motivating. And um, I've been at the Institute since, so it's been five years. Um, I started off as a volunteer, and then I've moved on to do other things within the Institute. I've been the college assistant, I've been the social media uh, coordinator, I've been um, the research assistant, and now I have a full-time job as um, the founding coordinator for our outreach initiative, which is the Educational Opportunities Initiative, where we provide educational consultations um, based out of mid-Manhattan and at Brooklyn to the immigrant community, to really try to connect them to college and any other educational opportunity that might be available. That's awesome. Uh, thank you. So Luis, um, you also graduated in 2014. Um, how did you get involved? Uh, Marlon just said that you were at the first meeting, so you've also been there um, since the beginning, but but how was that um, process of getting involved for you and how'd you end up at Lehman and, and what have you been doing since? Yeah, so for me, it's like a little slightly different. I mean, I always knew that I was undocumented. Um, I I think when I was like uh, a teenager, I really, really didn't understand like what that meant. Uh, I mean, to me, it's like I was here, I was going to school, um, I had a life, uh, you know, a home, 
So I didn't really understand like the legal implications of like what it means to be undocumented because up to like this point when I'm like a senior in high school, um, I didn't really see that there was like an obstacle um, in my life. Um, Hmm. And, and so for me, yeah, it was, I mean, it was not like a rude awakening where like, Oh crap, I'm going to like apply to college, but I'm undocumented. I can't qualify for financial aid. I mean, I knew that. um, And I think, uh, my focus when I was like in high school was basically joining the air force. And so other than that, college was not like in my radar at all. Um, but then throughout like, you know, being in the ROTC and really trying to figure out on whether, whether I could join the military, which, um, I learned that I couldn't because I was undocumented. Um, so that was like, in my senior year, I didn't really have any plans to like apply to college. So I had to like really scramble and just like apply to like four schools, um, which I got into. And Lehman, of course, was like uh, the one that offered like uh, full scholarships. I was like, OK, this is where I'm going to go. Um, and then I actually met Alicia and Melissa um, in freshman year when I took a class. Um, it was actually a seminar on uh, immigration. Um and so basically that's how we con- how we connected. Um, you know, like Melissa became my friend. And so like we started really getting into like what she was involved. And that was basically um, when she said like she was forming like a group um, for undocumented students, a safe space. Um, I believe that that's what she said. Um, and mm-hmm. so I was, yeah, why not? Let's let's do it. Um, and I and I, I mean, I think that was like the first time that I was like really uh, introduced into like the whole organizing, like grassroots, like undocumented, um, activism. Um, and through that, I was connected to the New York state youth leadership council. Um, and never, and, you know, really got into like their campaigns, whether that was like the New York state dream act and, uh, beginning with like the federal dream act, of course. Um, and like among other things, um, and that's how, yeah, essentially how I connected because I, I felt that I, I, based from my experience, it, you know, it, navigating like college was not was not a you know wonderful experience in the sense that I didn't know what I was doing, and so I felt that I needed to facilitate that process for uh, undocumented youth who were uh, coming up into you know being seniors and thinking about college and what are they going to be doing with their lives. And basically thinking closer to home, like thinking about my sisters and like uh, they're like undocumented. Will they be able to like have the opportunity to like uh, attend college or like, you know, basically that was like my whole um, reason for like really getting and get engaging with like uh, undocumented youth activism um, organizing. Um, and yeah, so then uh, ever since then, um, currently I'm actually... I work for the Human Services Council, um, and it's basically uh, an association um, that advocates for the human services uh, sector. Um, and it's a lot of like public policy dealing with like contracting with government. So it's a, a lot of technical things, but it's essentially ensuring that like these nonprofits can better serve their communities um, by having better funding, um, among other things. Um, but yeah. So Alicia, do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, how you got, I mean, I'm especially interested also in just how you started teaching, um, classes on immigration mm-hmm. and, um, 
and then also what your experience uh, getting involved with the Lehman Dream Team was like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, there's uh, an importance to the to the moment that that everyone has described so far um, in terms of a convergence of of certain things that was pretty unique. Um, I think at the mo- at that time, um, I came into I came to Lehman in 2007, um, and I had been studying for me, it was, it was, um, really meaningful to, to teach in the Bronx because I had done my dissertation research in cultural anthropology, um, at NYU, but I did my field research in the Bronx, uh, working with, um, activist organizations, um, in uh, two Bronx churches, um, that were comprised of Mexican immigrant families, um, who were advocating for immigration reform. And, um, it was a very um, inspiring period because there was a ton of activism um, and people were really, um, you know, making very um, significant claims uh, for citizenship based on belonging and um, human rights. And so I, I had been studying that and writing about that um, and really involved with those communities. Um, and when I got to Lehman, it wasn't really until um Melissa and Marlene and, and Luis arrived as, as first years that I, that I had students in my classroom who were activists, um, in immigrant rights. Um, but they were approaching it from a completely different perspective from the organizations that I was familiar with, because, um, whereas the organizations that I was familiar with, a lot of times people, um, were afraid of appearing in the media or, um, there was a lot of use of spokespeople, um, people, a lot of times people who had documents would, would be asked to speak on behalf of people who didn't have documents. And, um, with the YLC and with the activism that, um, that was just described to you, um, it was the opposite approach. It was, um, that people who were undocumented needed to speak for themselves and needed to be heard and needed to be at the table and, and, and spokespeople shouldn't be speaking for other people, but rather, um, there needed to be, um, spaces and voice voices of people that were experiencing this. And so I found that, um, extremely, um, compelling and, and engaging, um, just as an educator, because when we were talking about immigration reform in the classroom, um, these three students, as well as others, um, were, were even more informed about what was happening in Washington and what was happening in Albany. And so, um, it really wasn't sort of a traditional dynamic where I was bringing information and we were debating it and discussing it, but rather it was a dialogue and, um, they, you know, had many more, um, you know, things to say than I did as, you know, as a scholar. Um, and so in that sense, you know, it was a tremendous learning experience for me personally, um, intellectually, but also just, you know, I found it incredibly inspiring because they were so brave and courageous at the time to really put themselves out there and to, you know, use their own stories as a way to, you know, make space for other people to feel, um, less afraid and, um, you know, come forward and really make claims for rights. And so I think at that time, one of the reasons that that was a special period is because, other universities really weren't doing anything to open the door. Um, and there were, you know, each of these students could have gone anywhere. They were so, 
um, incredibly academically successful, but they were having trouble navigating the system because the colleges and universities were not opening the door and were not aware of the ways that they were, in fact, closing the door. And CUNY at the time was a little bit um, forward thinking in terms of, of, you know, creating scholarships that undocumented students could have. And so I think, you know, it was Lehman's gain, um, the, you know, the fact that they were in many cases interested in going other places, but came to Lehman because Lehman um, offered more support. And, you know, we benefited by that at Lehman. And now, you know, because of their activism, a lot of colleges and universities are doing better by undocumented students. Um, And CUNY, in fact, is not, you know, at the front of the vanguard anymore in terms of being, you know, super progressive or forward thinking about these things. Um, So it was really, you know, a moment where, um, you know, paradoxically, their, you know, the doors that were closed on them made it so that you know, we were kind of all in the same place at the same time in a way that, um, you know, I I think was really important for, um, the space that was created in the Lehman dream team and, and, and citywide and statewide and nationwide too. So there, there are a couple of things you said there that, um, I think really speak to some of the themes that came up, uh, in the Knocklow round table. Um, you were talking about the the groups that you've done your field research with in the Bronx um, advocating for citizenship based on belonging and on human rights, um, which I think speaks to the shift um, that I think all three of you at different points in this roundtable bring up um, from when the Dream Act was was largely the focus of activism um, to this new um, shift in undocumented activism, uh, the slogan undocumented, unafraid and unapologetic comes up a few times. And, and I'd of course encountered it before. It's, it's a pretty, it's a great slogan. It's a great chant. Um, it's easy to remember, but it's also very clearly, um, a much more fleshed out theory and strategy of activism and of advocacy, um, than, everyone might might realize um, there's something here to being out as an undocumented uh, student, activist, immigrant, um, but also to um, to not having to be one particular kind of immigrant um, to qualify for certain kinds of treatment. Um, so I mean there are a couple there are a couple moments that I that really popped out to me um, in the yeah so Marlon, you talked about, um, how things like the DREAM Act and DACA, while they do provide access to services, they also, you said they divide the undocumented community into, quote, deserving and undeserving immigrants. Um, and I wonder just as a student yourself, someone who, as Alicia says, is very academically successful, um, how, how you stand um, in relation to that kind of thinking and, and how you would want to, to move forward. Um, and I think this is something all of you, of course, can speak to. Um, so in terms of, yes, being deserving and undeserving, I think um, we have to talk about the term dreamer um, and how maybe in the beginning, the when we were younger, also new to the movement, it, um, it seemed like a great idea to use the term dreamer um, to kind of promote the movement and get, our, get ourselves out and make a platform and make sure that we were visible and um, maybe we weren't thinking down the long run the effects that would have on immigration reform, because now there's this perfect high-achieving student, um, such as myself, you know, who has the perfect GPA, the deserving person, you know, the, the correct 
immigrant who hasn't committed any crimes, innocent, brought here by their parents. And it leaves a whole entire community left out, um, even within young people right now who qualify and don't qualify for DACA. Um, the same thing again, being deserving and undeserving. And, and it's as simple as arriving here at the correct time and not being here at the correct time. We have, especially now at my job, I see many students who don't qualify for DACA and um, they're struggling to pay for college. They're struggling to get into college. And is that fair? Is that right? Right? There's a whole new, another generation. I kind of call them the undocumented 2.0, and I'm waiting to see what they're going to do about what's going on and what's happening um, to them, right? But it's definitely all of these terms, and I think it's counterproductive to the immigration movement as well, because it doesn't just divide up the immigrant community, it divides up the community-based organizations, or the people that are supposed to be pioneers and fighting and advocating for change, because some of them agree with the terms of being deserving and profiling that part of the community and bringing uh, whatever legal, um, I want to say whatever the legislators, whatever the congressmen and congresswomen want to offer to them, you know, if they want to kind of uh, give it to them first and then everyone else after that, um, it divides the community into, um, you know, first and second class citizens, even within these um this big, big, big community that we have, and it excludes people who maybe, you know, were younger and committed a felon, and, and now they're uneligible for something, or, you know, it, it makes people who might be driving without a license, it makes them into criminal. So I think it really talks about the immigration system and how it criminalizes people, and how immigration itself is, isn't is seen as a human law, you know, seen as a, under, like, a very penal and you know, it's either wrong or right, there's no in-between, there's no humanitarian way to look at a woman driving her children to school without thinking of her as a criminal, right? Whether it, it, she was just doing that out of necessity because, you know, it's the only way to get around without without the license, right? So I think it's all very counterproductive, and I think um, there's a lot of work to be done there and moving away from these narratives of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant and who is deserving and who isn't deserving of it. And um, I think people are uh, more now um, are starting to fight back against the, these terms, especially the, the word dreamer and how it's not inclusive of everybody and how it doesn't represent the family. So towards the end of our college years, I feel we were focused more on being more inclusive and, and making sure that if you know the federal Dream Act had passed, had failed to pass, and um, the New York State Dream Act had failed to pass, that it was now everyone or nothing kind of. Uh, a new strategy to approach immigration reform. And I think more than ever, I feel not only us as the older generation of activists, but also the new people who are just showing up and trying to fight and create these new spheres of activism are also kind of um, moving along with these um, same themes of, you know, uh, deportation, um, not one more deportation, that means everyone, not just um, those who... Uh, committed a violent felon or whatever they might have done, but it means everyone, right? It just doesn't mean uh, the high-achieving uh, dreamer who was held on the Greyhound bus. Um, so I think it's really important to, to take notice of that change, of how everyone's moving towards this uh, very inclusive and demanding immigration reform for everyone and realizing that it's not just the Latino community, but it's also um, Haitians, it's also Asians, it's also people from... Eastern Europe, who are being affected by the status and um, really trying to uh, display the variety and the complexities of what it really means to be an undocumented person. Mm -hmm. 
Well said. Yeah. Luis, you um you mentioned in the round table also that the the defeat of the Dream Act you said um kind of forced a realization that um let's see, what what is all you say? Okay, yeah, that uh that quote our efforts to present and identify ourselves as American would not be accepted by the state apparatus. And I think that's a really that's a really um precise way of gesturing to how this sort of legislation um is most effective in kind of papering over the broader issues. Um, and I wonder in terms of dealing with a state apparatus, um, how this kind of shift in focus for you at least, um, points to a better path for policy, um, and a better path for just interacting with the state. You know, you, you talk about uplifting and celebrating each other and advocating for everyone. Um, and I also wonder kind of what the expectation is then of politicians and of legislators, um, in the face of this kind of narrative shift in the movement. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the, the term dreamer is like a very packed, um, concept, um, and it stems from like the idea of like, well, it stems from like the sense of belonging, like, right. It, it there's a connotation that to be a dreamer, it means to be, uh, an American without papers. Uh-huh. Um, and you put it back then in like, uh, late 20, uh, 2010. Um, and so in, in that sense, it's like you, you communicate these stories about, uh, you know, kids who grew up here and went to like, uh, elementary and like middle school, yada, yada. And they are, um, as, uh, what was the term that you said it? I, the, I think it was, I believe it was something along the lines of, uh, as American as apple pie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I, I think in, late 2010 when you know there was like a lot of like organizing for the federal dream act um you would see a lot of like the dreamers in a lot of the congressional hearings um uh well a lot of the congressional debates talking about here's like a picture of a perfect 4.0 uh 4.0 student who wants to go to the military uh blah 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 and and it's basically painting this uh this you know, this, this, this idea of like an ideal immigrant, someone who's deserving of being here in the U.S., who has followed every single rule uh, laid down by the U.S. Um, and whether that's society or the U.S. government. Um, and, and somehow you would never hear about, well, what about the students who, you know, had to drop out of high school because they, you know, they couldn't afford to uh, pay the rent or, uh, you know, assist, uh, their parents. Because a lot of like, if you think about it, like, uh, a lot of like kids, a lot of like, uh, uh, people who have DACA, um, it's it, for them, it's a way for them to really support their families. It's, it's a way for them to have like, a uh, a source of income. Um, because you have but, access then to work permits if you, yeah. if you qualify for DACA. Essentially that's the way it is. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, the failure of the, you know, the federal dream act, um, was like, to me, uh, at least to me, it was like a rude awakening because I do recall that I was one of those, uh, those, uh, kids who would be like, yeah, um, I graduated as a valedictorian. Um, I want to enlist in the air force and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm deserving of this. You should give me citizenship. Um, and so to me, really, you know, a lot of the stories uh, during those debates it were stories like like mine, essentially. And 
that was all of that was rejected like soundly like it was not something that was easily accepted um so at least to me that was like a rude awakening it was like well um you know we tried to like really uh you know be this this uh this this ideal immigrant and that's still not enough um and you know it's it will never be enough so what can we do so i think for me i think that was the shift where uh dreamers became undocumented unafraid and unapologetic and thought about like well what can we do if there's nothing being done at the federal level how can we provide some relief to our communities who are in constant attack um and they're struggling to survive like what are the ways that we can do that and and here at least at the, the new york state youth leadership council um that really pushed them to uh come together and think about the ways that they could uh, support uh, their communities. And one of the ways was uh, the New York State Dream Act. And what basically that entail, um, that called for work authorization, so like a work permit, um, health insurance, uh, assistance to uh, uh, access to financial aid, um, a driver's license. So there are these four big things that, you know, are, they're like a lot. Like I, I don't think anyone could, be like, yeah, you're going to get a driver's license. Yeah, you're going to get a work permit. And yet they came up with this idea because these are the things that our communities need. Um, And they took it to like, uh, you know, to the state level. And I think a a lot of the work has shifted to the state level um, from, from I guess, from early 2011 to um, early, well, I'd put, I want to say up to this point, but maybe up to like all the way into like DACA. Um, so yeah, so I think, I think that we realized that, you know, to say that we are deserving immigrants, we are ideal, uh, Americans who deserve to be here in this country. is very damaging to really the conversation, uh, going around in our communities. Um, uh, because when you think about it, like if you're saying like, well, these, uh, dreamers are perfect. They're like, they follow the law, blah, blah, blah. Um, we can give them like a pathway to citizenship, but what that means is that we need to like secure the border um, so that other criminals don't come in. Uh, and and you know it's like well you're 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 essentially uh, at the expense of others. You are moving forward, and which I mean to me that didn't sit right because my parents are undocumented. Are they are they criminals? Are they should, are, you know should I get like DACA and they should be kicked out of the country? No, that's it's not okay. And I think that we realized that the conversation and like the, you know, calling ourselves dreamers was essentially leading to that because it, it, it did actually did lead to that. It led to more border enforcement, uh, uh, you know, more deportations under Obama. So, I mean, at least to me, it's, it's a very clear thing. It's like you can't advocate for one specific group and then throw the other one under the bus. And I think it's the same thing today, like when, you know, with potentially DACA being removed, um, a lot of the emphasis is on DACA, but then they're not, you know, giving much attention to TPS, um, which is another thing that might potentially Mm -hmm. be removed. And so, again, here comes the, I feel like here's where the whole conversation of like, yeah, we're more deserving, so DACA should be in place. No, you should be at, you know, you should be organizing for both. We whether it's all communities really deserve like some relief. And if this is what we can get for them, then we should all really be engaging in that. 
Um, but I mean, to me, that's, that's basically, I think, just essentially realizing that no matter how much I try, I don't think I will ever be an American, um, whether legally or culturally, even. Because, I mean, come on, in this climate, I if they saw me down the street, they'd probably think that I'm not American. They were like, yes, here's another immigrant, a foreigner who came to this country. Um, so, I mean, to me, it's very clear. I, I, you know, I don't think it's, it's, you, I think at one point you just realize that you're not, you know, you're not good enough for anything. Um, and you have to like, you know, take things into your own hand. And that means like organizing for like every member of your community, because if you justify like the deportation of one, then you, you can justify the deportation of everyone. Melissa, there there were a couple of things that you said. Um, so on the one hand, there's the issue of the Dream Act and the and the um, untenable compromises that it makes in in pursuit of a path to citizenship. Um, and you mentioned something which I think speaks to the resonance that at different points all three of you pointed to um, with other uh, social movements that are, are pretty active um, at this time. I, I've noticed this kind of distinction, particularly between younger and older activists, um, where all three of you clearly demonstrate uh, an appreciation for how important narrative is and how important the language that we use to talk about these issues, to describe ourselves and to describe each other is. Um, and you mentioned at one point, you know, when that shift occurred, um, kind of dreamers and immigration uh, activists started to to lean towards um, advocating for the entire community rather than just for people who fit into this tiny and, as Luis has just mentioned, sort of malleable, negotiable box um, of the ideal immigrant. Um, you, you mentioned that there were others um, who are part of the fight, whether they were lawyers, politicians, um, other undocumented people who felt that, that by demanding, um, rights for everyone and not just a subset, uh, there, you were taking away from quote progress, um, that was being made. And then later on, you also mentioned how DACA is a kind of, it kind of seems to me like you were saying it's sort of, um, like kind of throwing a bone to the undocumented community, but it's a temporary, Thing and that it's sort of um, served to impede further activism um, and kind of slow things down. So I wonder, um, maybe you maybe you could explain a little bit what you mean um, by this sort of like using progress as a sort of a euphemism, um, and and or maybe using it as a as a way of covering up um, insufficiencies and compromises that are being made, uh, covering up people who are being left behind. And also, um, you know, what progress, what real progress looks like to you, um, particularly in terms of DACA, whether it's here to stay or not, um, and, and how something, something like DACA could be improved upon or, or what the future is if it's not executive orders. I think what I was referring to, um, was so prior to to the fur action um, happening, and you know that um, doc, undocumented youth themselves were the ones that were organizing on the ground and made it happen, right? Um, I think it's very important to highlight the fact that, um, which is a misconception that happens and still today, right? Even years after, um, is 
that DACA was not just granted by the Obama administration, that he just did not wake up one day and was like, I'm going to grant, you know, these, these um, mm-hmm. young people a work permit, right? It took a lot of organizing, like it took hunger strikes, it took um, thousands of calls, letter writing, rallies, marches, you know, people did self-deportation. Um, so it took a lot of heavy work, you know, emotional labor, mental labor, physical labor by undocumented youth themselves uh, from organizations all around the country, from local organizations to national organizations like the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, uh, which was one of the main national organizations that that did a lot of this work to ensure that the fair action happened. Um, and so, right, and, and it's it's this, the story of, of movements, you know, not just here in the United States, but across the world, right, that things um, are done through the people, by the people, for the people, not necessarily the government. Um, and so when, you know, all of this was happening and, you know, even the failure of the DREAM Act um, uh, and ignited a new some sort of form of activism among our communities and one that was not just about respectability politics, right, one that was not we're not going to just show you that we're these perfect or, you know, ideal immigrants, but rather that we are a complex, multi-layered human beings um, that given the history and the complexities of the political systems that the United States has, um, you know, rooted across the across the world um, to show that we were just not uh, buy one product kind of thing, right? That this is not just, didn't just pop out of nowhere, rather it has a long historical context as to why uh, people are here, why people are being pushed uh, to migrate over here um, and, and and to really, in pushing people, you know, even ourselves, right? Uh, I think, and I just wanted to note that, it, you know, the idea of the dreamer, the idea of these like labels and narrative um, made sense during the time, right? We have to look at the context of mm-hmm. and the content of where we were, of when people decided to take these this organizing, right? So all of this started back in 2001, right? Many of us hadn't even been, you know, had just arrived to the United States or had already been here for a really long time. But organizers and activists, you know, maybe you know, even way before 2001, right? Uh, when the first when it was the first time that Senator Durbin from Chicago started talking about the Dream Act um, through the narrative lens, right? Introducing the story of Teresa Lee, an uh, undocumented young person from Chicago. Um, and she became sort of the poster child for the Dream Act. And then we had organizers across the country. Um, and so it made sense during that time, right? And it made sense in 2010 to continue the narrative for many of us, right? We were still not in this political lens or understanding how systems of oppression work or understanding um, how the United States, uh, you know, had a deep history in ensuring that um, the deserving got everything, right? And and we can look through this at this in different points of history in the United States, uh, whether it was through the civil rights movement, um, you know, through um, the women's rights movement and understanding how it was very much creating the deserving and, and the undeserving, right? So that it's not a new narrative, uh, within the immigrant rights movement, um, but rather that there is this system um, within the government and within our communities and our society that has created these alter- these uh, two different ideas of, of who is deserving, who belongs, and who doesn't. Um, and so when DACA came out, I think we and we saw it right, and it, it did decrease a sense of, of activism, it, it decreased a sense of urgency, right, and naturally so, right. This was sort of a huge thing for the first time. Many of us were going to be able to to work. Um, it, it, it gave a sense of humanity in the sense of like, okay, now we are we can focus on just like working and you know doing 
regular normal things, right? We don't have to be so afraid of whether we're going to be deported, whether we're going to get home and our families are not going to be there. Um, and so it, it decorated that. It gave us a, a, um, a sense of, of, of feeling like for now we were okay. Um, and so it, but at the same time, we saw that, you know, the numbers of people coming to me, you know, we saw this mostly um, at that time I was still organizing with the New York State Youth Leadership Council. And, you know, we saw that less people were coming and, you know, and we understood why, right? For many of us who had, who had also been um, uh, awarded DACA, uh, we understood why that feeling, right? We were sort of feeling grounded for the first time in the sense of like being able to have a, a, a job or, you know, being um, more eligible for scholarships. Um, and but it, it, it became counterproductive to now where we are now, right? With all these threats against DACA, right? We have an administration that from the beginning, right? From when they first announced themselves, they said that they were coming after our communities. Um, and that has been the messaging since January, right? And so we had our guard down and now they're saying, well, now you need to get your guard back up because we're actually, you know, really after you, right? In a, in a way... That was already also happening, right, under the Obama administration. Three, more than three million people had been deported. Um, and I think that's the other the narrative, the other shift in the narrative that a lot of our community saw, right? That DACA, yes, became a good thing. It was a band-aid to the to the bigger issue. And you know, we're seeing that now. Um, and that it was covering up for what was actually happening and the deportation machine that was growing and growing. Um, so it became, it, it gave us an illusion that for now things were going to be okay. Um, but actually what was happening behind doors or not even behind doors, right? Very visible as well was the deportations that were happening um, and the changes in policy. And so in, you know, I also think it's important to not look at this in a very, from only the activist or the organizer perspective, right? We also need to be make sure that it's not a, coming from an elitist look and understanding the humanity of it and validating the fears of our people, of our communities, right? That not everybody who's not in the activist or organizer world are going to see it from like, no, my, I'm very afraid, like I'm about to lose my job. You know, things are going to start getting uh, really bad. Um, and so I think validating that is also important, right? It also makes sure that we are not furthering the, the division in our communities um, because that could be very damaging. And then when you step out and like really see it from, you know, from the lens of like using your organizer and then like your, your humanity perspective, you'd see that this is a very well planned by um, the system and the people who are in power in terms of like our political government, right? They know what they're doing. This is not just something that they're, thinking this is a blueprint that they have and, they're, and they know what they're doing, right? Um, and so what we're seeing right now with this threat against DACA and that um, the 10 states that are threatening to, the, um, to um, the administration if they don't take DACA away by September 5th, you know, we're seeing that as a very clear threat to, to, to our communities, to the work that we've been doing. Um, but it is also, again, another awakening to show that we're not safe, right? That DACA was really just something very temporary. Um, and that if we don't continue to organize and like, you know, understand that we cannot, and I think that with the, the failure of the dream act did that, right? We were like, okay, we cannot play the, you know, I'm a good person, you should, because I belong here, um, because I'm a good American, right? Because they don't obviously care about this, right? The, the lawmakers are not concerned about whether you can prove that you're a good American. Um, 
it's you know the respectability politics are have to be out of the window because again like they're coming they've been coming after us right but we've been fighting back we've been putting our you know we've been at the forefront we've been saying that we belong we belong here for many different reasons but not just because you want us to be this ideal uh, americans values that are not necessarily true to what you know, the United States supposedly stands for, right? Um, and so I think that also intersects in understanding the different other movements that are happening at this time that have been happening for many, many years, um, you know, from Black Lives Matter to um, in, in connecting with our, uh, the Native Americans, indigenous communities here in the United States, uh, women's rights, um, and seeing really the intersection and how much also we have to learn from the organizers in these other movements, right? Um, that black people, specifically black women, have been leading the fight for social justice and civil rights, um, that our indigenous communities as, have been doing as well, right? From understanding the historical, um, the history of this country. And I think that was the other shift that we um, realized that we were doing a huge disservice by, by saying things like we're all, we're all immigrants, we're a nation of immigrants, um, because we were completely erasing um, what happened to enslaved people through slavery, what happened with the genocide of, of Native Americans in this country. Um, so those things have to be said, right? Other, otherwise, we're doing a complete disservice to our own movement and understanding the history and, and the intersections and really understanding why people have been pushed to migrate here. Um, and so really bringing those points into the conversation, right? Like, looking very uh, into it of like, who are the people who are making these decisions, right? They're all white, all white men um, writing the laws or deciding over whether we're going to stay or not, right? And that has been the case for centuries in this country, right? White men um, writing and, and deciding who gets to stay, who, who does not, or who's deserving and who is not. Um, and so that has to be addressed. Right. And people would accuse many of us that bring these things up of being um, racist. Right. And in talking about reverse racism, mm -hmm. which is right. Not necessarily true. Um, and so those things have to be talked about. And I think, you know, the uh, we're seeing it a lot through our social media um, organizing that's been happening where, you know, we have to push ourselves. Right. Of, of being um, sure that we're not creating further uh, anti-blackness in our communities, um, that we're not erasing the history of genocide in this country and of slavery. And it's also saying that, yes, our immigrant communities have been exploited through history. And so how are we ensuring that all these things are being said without erasing one another? Um, and so I think that's why I was talking about how DACA was a, a good progress, but at the same time, it did a lot of... Um, harming into what we're seeing right now, right? Of like, now it's being put in threat, like it's in danger, um, or putting more fear into our communities. Um, and so that has been really problematic in that sense, right? But it's not supposed, it was not supposed to be perfect. It was not supposed to be an easy road. Um, and I think, you know, we are all uh, are very aware of that. Before we wrap up, um, Alicia, I was hoping to hear a little bit from you about um, what the view is like uh, at Lehman College on campus right now. Um, so, yeah, I, what do things look like on campus right now? Um, what is the Lehman mm -hmm. dream, dream Team up to and, and where are things going, you think? 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, overall, I think everyone is, um, you know, obviously re- reacting and responding and, and it's hard to, re- it's hard to know how to respond with the continual onslaught of, of, of threats of violence and violence coming from this administration. So I think, um, you know, it's sort of a day by day assessment within the, the city, the country, um, and also within institutions. I think at Lehman, you know, as, as everyone has said, I think, you know, DACA was a mixed blessing in the sense that it gave really tangible, important things. Um, but at the same time, I think that, um, I haven't seen the same, um, level, you know, the, the, the 2010 period, 2010, uh, 2013, 2014 period, um, there was such incredible, um, energy and, and the activists sacrificed so much, um, for, of, of their time, of their energy, their families sacrificed. Um, there was such, um, a level of commitment that was really not sustainable for the long term. And I think that, um, since DACA, you know, there, on the one hand, um, a lot of people have redirected their energies, which they deserve to do. And, um, you know, they, and, and, and no one consisted in that level of activism, but at the same time, there hasn't been kind of a replenishment of new energy of younger students kind of taking on that level of, of involvement in ensuring not only that DACA is, is sustained, but also, um, pushing for more activism. And I think some of that, you know, I don't blame them. I think a lot of that is because of, um, you know, a sense that as everyone has also said that there, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe there is no point at which there will be an acknowledgement of rights or, um, human rights and that instead energies need to be directed elsewhere. So I think that we're in a tricky time. I think that, um, you know, when Trump was elected, it certainly, was not as shocking, I think, um, for a lot of the students that I know as it was for, um, a lot of people who have hadn't already been involved in activism continually in the years preceding Trump's election. Um, and so I think there was a, you know, a, a level of, um, a sophistication in their analysis, um, that was sort of absent in the country as, um, you know, the, the shock of, of Trump hit other communities, um, perhaps harder, um, so I think at this point, you know, as, as a scholar, you know, I'm not now the, um, faculty advisor of the dream team, but as a, as a professor who's concerned about making sure that my institution continues to, um, meet its mission, um, to be a, a space that is open to New York city, um, and that continues to allow, um, for people to, to access education, um, and to pursue their goals, irrespective of their immigration status, their financial status, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, you know, CUNY has not really, you know, done what a lot of other institutions have done. A lot of the Cal State systems have, you know, sort of an ombudsman who, um, oftentimes someone who is an undocumented student or former student who's, you know, uh, has power to really guide the institution, um, and hear students and families in terms of what they need and, and push the institution. There isn't a designated office at CUNY looking out for undocumented students. Um, there's a lot of solidarity among faculty. I know a lot of them are 
you know, big fans of NACLA and, and part of your listenership and readership. And so I would encourage people to know that even though CUNY, um, you know, has been vocally on the side of, of immigrant and Muslim communities and, um, you know, vocally uh, expressing support for undocumented students um, throughout this whole process. There's a lot of tangible things that have not been done to to help make students feel more secure currently, but also to um, make sure that they're okay in case DACA is rescinded, um, in case there's stepped up enforcement. And so there are very, you know, concrete things. So I encourage people, you know, in whatever space they're working in, if they're faculty or alumni um, or just the general public to continue to ask CUNY what CUNY is doing and who's, who's um, you know, really following up and making sure that, that students are okay. Um, and, you know, making sure that scholarships will, re- will be replaced, um, that working, that students will be given grants if they can't work. Um, you know, all of these things need to be, um, uh, there needs to be some vigilance to make sure that we don't go backwards, but we also need to continue moving forwards and, um, pushing, you know, for the New York state, um, you know, and local governments to also do more, um, to make up for, for what the federal government obviously is, is not going to do at this time. So I think there's a lot of space and a lot of room. Um, it's a time, you know, there's a realism, I think, in terms of, you know, looking at what's going on. And I'm hoping that that realism will help us to be very practical and very focused and, and just keep, you know, keep pushing and try to, um, you know, inspire, hopefully we can, you know, get new, um, newer and younger students to be aware of the sacrifices that Melissa and Marlene and Luis's generation made, um, to, to get what is available now and, and to really push harder for more. So is there anything for the three of you, um, any other action points that you would want to talk about on the pod, um, and have out there for people? Um, I think uh, echoing what Alicia said in like, you know, there's different uh, levels of uh, ways that people can get involved, right? And being very also aware of our, our, our different privileges and like status and like understanding how also all of that comes into play. Um, so I know that in, for example, here in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, uh, you know, a lot of um, allies have taken upon themselves to like host dinners for uh, and have like uh, know your rights trainings, um, you know, for for families here. Um, or they've also done like been starting to do fundraising to help in different ways of like other um supporting people with their application fees in terms of like immigration application fees. Um, or, you know, even fundraising to help a young person, you know, afford college. Um, so if, if, if your skill is fundraising, if your skill is being able to network with people um, and you have those resources, um, ensuring that you use that. Um, if you're a young, uh, undocumented DACA recipient or whatever your immigration status is you want to join, there's different and multiple different organizations that you can definitely come into um, in different spaces. You know, whether it's the New York State Youth Leadership Council, Atlas, um, there's also Families for Freedom. They're like an amazing, badass organization that does a lot of work against deportation and stopping the deportation of many people. Um there's organizations that meet SECA, where one of our friends um, and longtime organizer has has works there too. 
a network that also through the institute and and, and Lewis. Um, and, and and if you're in school and you're in a college or university, and you know, echoing again what Alicia said, ensuring that your that the school policies include supporting undocumented and DACA recipients or any other um, you know students, but regardless of their immigration status. I, I think we're at a time when we need everybody, you know, plug in and, and really doing the work um, in a very, obviously, like I said, very careful manner in the terms of like understanding where we're all coming from and where we are and realizing the tools and resources that we have. Um, and I think, and, you know, the biggest one could be even if, if you've never heard about uh, undocumented young people or immigration and you're starting to get involved, doing a lot of education on your own or like reaching out to people, right? Because there's so many myths out there about, you know, whether undocumented immigrants pay taxes and, um, you know, or whether undocumented students go to college. We see a lot of young people who've been told to, to drop out of high school, to, you know, not even think about college, uh, which is a complete lie. Um, and so if you're a young, undocumented or DACA recipient or whatever your immigration status is, you can go to college. Um, and, you know, and there are ways to finance your education, I think, more now than back in 2001 or 2010. Um, so part of your job also, you know, and, and for allies, right, ensuring that we're busting out myths, right, that uh, are not true um, and seeing people who, who they are and not just as a, a binary good or bad person. Um, so, you know, there's a it's, it's a fight for the long haul. There's many ways that people can get involved. And so if you're in New York or if you're wherever you are, uh, there are local organizations doing the groundwork. Uh, they're already, there've been people doing this work for years and years. And so we welcome you all to join, to, to find the ways that you want to make sure that the immigration um, debate, the policies are more humane. Um, and because a lot of things are in threat, uh, in danger right now, right? We have the threat against DACA, against TPS for our Haitian communities, right? It was expanded, extended to January of 2018, but we do not know what's going to happen after January of 2018 for our um, sisters and brothers from Haiti who were able to get TPS, right? So that's another way that people can get involved and organize to ensure that TPS stays. Um, and, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with DACA. So if you want to join and help us fight for DACA and even further, you know, expand what um, how our communities can be, all of our communities can be benefited and be able to stay here in a permanent way. Uh, we welcome you all to organize with us and ensure that um, young people and the people who are directly impacted are the ones sharing their stories or the ones that are doing, um, you know, the voice, the art being the voice of, of, of the movement. Um, but we welcome everybody to help us um, and to join the different organizations, join the different movements um, in whatever way you feel comfortable, safe and protected. Um, we have a, a long fight, uh, but we're here for the long run and we hope that you can join us and we hope that you see yourself um, in the work that we are all doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. So for listeners who um, aren't already involved and are interested in uh, becoming involved, we'll, we'll provide some links on the NACLA website um, to resources, uh, both for those who are documented and want to work in solidarity, but also for um, people with a variety of immigration statuses who might um, be in need in, of resources or just to you know get involved in some groups that are doing really great work here in the city, but also um, across the country. So um, Thank you so much, all of you. Melissa Garcia Velez, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, as well as Marlon Fernandez. Thank you. Thanks so much for uh, talking today. Also, Alicia Galvez. Thank you so much. 
and Luis Saavedra. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for engaging with us. This has been NACLA Radio. As always, you can find us online at nakla.org, where you can also subscribe and donate to NACLA, at facebook.com slash NACLA, and on Twitter at NACLA, that's N-A-C-L-A. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Jarocho. Los cantos del monte, los plumajes nuevos, coco.